We are uh, shifting communion over to next week, uh, purely because uh, we've got a bunch of stuff to kind of roll out to you this morning. So uh, after the sermon, Pastor Tamil will come up to do uh, formation reflection time, and then we're going to kind of explain to everybody what is going to roll out in this December season, how we're going to interact as a church uh, in the Christmas season, and what we're also going to challenge you with uh, as the church in this season. This morning, though, specifically, folks, we're going we're gonna to be starting a Christmas series, right? Every year, right, I think it's my eighth Christmas here now uh, that I'm going to share the same story with you. It's awesome for us preachers, right? The same story every year, uh, and we preach on it from different angles, but it's essentially the same kind of thing. And so you can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. That's where we're going to get things started. But this series specifically this year is in conjunction with what Pastor Tamil is going to talk about after, uh, after the sermon. Uh, there's an email that went out, because I know you're all checking your emails and you eagerly see Evergreen Heights and it pops up and you open it frantically. Uh, and so I want to encourage you, there's an email that went out this morning that is launching sort of our Christmas Infinitum Spiritual Formation Challenge. And the preaching is going to be uh, connected to that challenge. And so we want to spend a month together in the Christmas story, but also specifically not just being kind of consumers that hear a message, but actually be people that live into that message each and every day. And so I want to encourage everybody to participate in this weekly challenge, to engage with all aspects of it over the next several weeks as we go through this Christmas season together. Now, folks, we offer these challenges for a reason, right? It's to help you draw closer to Jesus, to gain some depth in your walk with Christ, which is what I preach every single week, right? Because being a Christian, it isn't just about believing the right thing. It's actually about living those things and specifically learning to commune with God in a deep, intimate way. So as, as I've preached recently, folks, our ethics, our ability to hear from God and our ability to love others in radical ways comes directly from God. It's not something that we can try harder at or we can conjure up within ourselves. It's something that we need to work at by drawing closer to God each and every day, learning to live our lives with Jesus at the center instead of all the things of the world at the center. James, the brother of Jesus, he says this in chapter four, verse eight of his book in the Bible. He says, come near to God and he will come near to you. You see, what God wants from us folks is not a posture of just soaking in, he wants a posture of us stepping forward. So the Bible doesn't say, like, attend church and check off that box, and now you're spiritual, now you're closer to Jesus. The Bible says, take a step forward toward God, come near to God, and then the result of that is he will come near to you. You see that? Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so the double-mindedness, that's about one foot in with Jesus and one foot in with 
the world we love so much. The double-minded, you're kind of living like a two-minded life. And that needs to be dealt with by you taking that step forward toward God. We need to learn to come closer to God. These resources that we're offering you are specifically designed to help you with that. Now, I can't make you do it. I've tried for a long time. I can't make you do it. That's a choice that you're going to have to make. But to be frank, if I was honest with you, I have no idea as a professing Christian why you wouldn't want to. So let's open our Bibles. We're going to get this sort of journey started through the Christmas narrative this year. And we're going to start in Luke chapter 1. It's going to be a big section of scripture. So you can read along with me. We're super familiar with this, which is part of the problem. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 5. In the time of King Herod of Judea, so whenever scripture says in the time of, it's giving you a historical marker, right? You'll notice sometimes the Bible doesn't really care about history, and sometimes the Bible really does care about history. And so whenever the Bible says in the time of, it's giving you that historical marker, But the scriptures are very rarely trying to be historically accurate. I know we've got lots of people that argue over those kinds of things, but the only time the scriptures are trying to be historically accurate is when it says, in the time of such and such king uh, or such and such reign. It's trying to give you a marker of time. Other times, it's not trying to do that at all. It's giving you principles. It's giving you lessons. It's giving you things to learn that will draw you closer to the king. So he says, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there's our marker, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. So the priestly descendant, Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God. That's an important line in scripture. So both Aaron and, er, sorry, both Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in the sight of God observing the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. So they're uh, absorbing. Wow, it's going to be a long sermon. (laughs) Can't talk this morning. Uh, They observing the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly, meaning all of them. They're doing all of them, okay? But they were childless. Because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Right away in the text, you're kind of like, wow, that just sort of like bounced all over the place. It's talking about how they're being obedient to God, and then yet it's jumping over to whether she can have babies or not. Like, what, what's happening in this text? It says, once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, <laughs> rolling a dice, Sometimes we hyper-spiritualize things and it's just as simple as rolling a dice, right? They were chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear, Pretty standard reaction when a human being meets something divine, an angel. 
But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. So we're being introduced to the first characters in the Christmas narrative. It's not yet Mary or Joseph or Jesus. It's Zechariah, Elizabeth, and John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He, will, he is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. To just to turn hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, of course, he's got questions, right? Like, there's not enough. You haven't explained enough to me, angel. I've got questions. You need to give me the ins and the outs because that's how people from the law work, right? I can't just go do it. I can't just live into it and believe the angel. I actually need details. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. This obedient priest whose wife is barren is being visited by an angel, something divine, and he's being told something. And the first thing he does in his humanness is says, I need more information. You need to give me step-by-step instructions of what exactly is going to happen so that I can actually begin to believe you. This is part of the human condition, isn't it? Listen to what it says. If I knew where I was. (laughs) The angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God And I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple, for he'd kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. Go figure. And for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Folks, right away, in the beginning of this Christmas story that we all love and read so much, we see something really interesting. We see suffering. We see suffering even in the midst of perfect obedience. You see, many of us in our North American culture today, we have this kind of prosperity-based view of the gospel. Prosperity doesn't just have to do with money, folks. 
Prosperity actually has to do with the lens in which you look at God. And a lot of us believe that that if we're obedient to God, if I live all of God's commands, then our lives will be rosy and easy. That that our lives will be easier, that, that God will reward us for our obedience by giving us a happy life free of suffering. But folks, in one of the greatest stories in the Bible, the story of the birth of the king, Jesus Christ, the savior who would come and save the world, we see a different picture than this joyful bliss of a season full of lights and glitter and fancy trees and consumerism and gifts. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous. That's what the scriptures say. This means that they're living in obedience to God. The passage says that they were careful. They paid attention. They were careful to obey all of the Lord's commands and regulations, all of them, not just the convenient ones, even the ones that got in their way. They were willing to obey them. That's the life that they were living. Yet, it says that they were without child. And this connection is really important. We don't think much of that today, but in their day and age, being without child was literally a symbol of being without God, not being favored by God but being overlooked by God. Now, we would never say that about somebody today, right? That's without child. But in their time, in their culture, that's the way that it was viewed. And so this is, this is a really, really big deal to the fact that they're without child and yet they're still living in obedience. And not just that, there's literally nothing they can do about it because they're really, really old. So it's like they're living in obedience. So see this, see this this connection. They're living in obedience and there's no hope. There's no hope. So how do they have hope by living in obedience but live hopelessly with what they want God to give them? Zechariah and Elizabeth lived their lives in obedience to God And God had not blessed them a lick for it. They must have been incredibly discouraged, right? Because if our view of who God is, is that if I'm obedient, then he will bless. What do you do when you're obedient and he doesn't bless? They would have been discouraged. This would have been a deep struggle, and yet they keep on serving, they keep on living with God at the center of their lives. Many of us folks would probably give up. Many of us would probably be like, I'm so discouraged, I'm doing everything God wants me to do, like, just forget it. Why bother living all of this? I don't need to read the scriptures much anymore. I've done that for years. Why? Like, just skip all the rituals, skip all the laws, skip all the things, and I'll just go about living my life the way I want to. And yet, they're living in perfect obedience, the passage says. Why bother? They're suffering. Folks, it's Christmas. When you think of Christmas, how many people go directly to suffering? 
Our culture presents Christmas, like I said, as a time of celebrating family, a time of buying, of giving and receiving, a time to take time off of work. Often, we think about everything but what the Christmas season is actually about, which is the birth of Jesus Christ and the long-suffering and boring obedience that surround his birth. That's right. The Christmas narrative is actually about long-suffering and boring obedience. How many people go there when they think of Christmas? Often in our culture today, we can be so captivated by the stories of the suddenly in Scripture, right? Those sort of suddenly this happens and suddenly that happens. And we think that things just kind of come out of the middle of nowhere. God just kind of swoops in and works and these miracles happen. It causes us to think in many ways with a framework that God's intervention is immediate and instant. We forget the longer work of preparation that the scriptures actually present to us in the Christmas narrative and all throughout the narrative of the Bible. Nothing is suddenly in the scriptures, but yet we think and function with the mindset of the suddenly. Have you ever paid attention to what takes place before the suddenly? Before the famous stories of intervention when God comes and the miracles happen? You see, it's it's within the place of preparation that God begins to move and work in his people. We see this all throughout the scriptures, and it's dominant in the Christmas story. There's actually two Greek words that are kind of interconnected in the Greek language that really help us to kind of understand what is happening all throughout scripture and how these, these, this preparation and then the suddenly, the things we see as suddenly were actually prepared for. They were long-suffering. And that's uh, two different words, chronos and kiros, which mean chronos means quality and kiros means quality. So quantity and quality. And these two words are like interchangeable. They're interconnected in the Greek language. What that's telling us is you don't have a suddenly, a kiros moment without long obedience. A kiros moment. That's kind of actually how life works. Has anybody ever heard of the author Malcolm Gladwell? He's from Elmira, Ontario. Nobody's ever heard of Malcolm Gladwell? A few people have? You should like jump into the world of literature for a second. He's probably one of the most famous authors right now out there. Uh, and he's from Elmira. Uh, I highly recommend you read some of his books. He was actually uh, originally a research journalist. He would, he's, a, he's a research uh, guy. That's what he does. And Malcolm Gladwell did some research on how somebody actually becomes an expert at something. How somebody actually you know, becomes a professional hockey player. How do you get good at shooting the puck? Is this a suddenly? Do you just have this natural ability to shoot the, the puck? So Gladwell goes through all of this looking at uh, people's success. How do they become uh, really, really, really good at something? Often we think famous people become stars overnight. They just, they just, they just kind of appeared. 
Like we jump right into the Kiros moment, but the true reality is they lived in the Kiros moment. The Kronos moment, Gladwell says, takes at least 10,000 hours. So what that means is to get good at shooting a hockey puck, you have to shoot that puck a minimum of 10,000 times. So you don't just pick up a stick and you're like automatically awesome, right? 10,000 times. Education is structured this way as well. When I build a syllabus, that's what you learn from. Uh, That's the structure of the course that you're going to do in, say, seminary or university. And so when I build that, if I'm going to teach in seminary, I'm actually required to put a certain amount of reading hours into the syllabus. And so what it means when someone has, for instance, a doctorate, it means, if this is built right in, that they have over 10,000 pages read on that subject. But it's interesting in our culture because like we read an article online and we become an expert, (laughs) right? But according to Gladwell, everything is about preparation in order to then land at the, what we would see as the suddenly. An NHL hockey player has spent hours upon hours upon hours being disciplined in their craft in order to be as successful as they are in it. So for instance, if you want to become an expert in the yo-yo, right? I've always kind of, you ever seen those guys? Like they do all the tricks, you know, they make it walk and they do all this different stuff. If you want to be an expert in the yo-yo, it takes a minimum of 10,000 hours of practice. Minimum to become an expert in the yo-yo. That's not how we work as human beings though, is it? We go buy a yo-yo and we just like expect within an hour or so, I'm an expert. We want to skip the chronos and jump into the kiros. The problem is, according to Gladwell's research, it's proven to be nearly impossible. You always need to put in the time in order to produce the fruit of what you're aiming for. And we have the same mindset with our relationship with God. We jump in and we say, I have faith. And then we don't shoot the puck 10,000 times. You see what I'm saying? In order to draw closer to God, in order to get to know God, you have to do the preparation. But what we do is we jump to the birth of the king and we miss the importance of the preparation that led up to the king. It's in the midst of the preparation, folks. You'll see this all through scripture, but specifically in the Christmas narrative. It's in the midst of the preparation, the hard work that needs to be done leading up to the suddenly, that God actually meets us where we're at. Often God is simply asking us to live our lives in ordinary obedience. 
this seemingly long and boring obedience of our lives that Jesus calls us to, it can be perfect. It can be boring, but it's where God actually moves. Both Elizabeth and Zechariah are committed and faithful to their faith and to the practice of their faith. They never give up hope, and guess what? God shows up in the midst of their long suffering, and a miracle happens. Everything we go through can be used by God who can redeem all things. Suffering and disappointment are simply preparation for God to begin to move. So why does the church push away from suffering and preparation so much? When the scriptures show us that it's exactly where God is dwelling, it's where he's living, it's where he will begin to move in our lives. But what do we look for? The good life, the happy life. The Bible speaks very differently. You see, Elizabeth is barren. Even though Zechariah has been faithful as a priest, he suffered the humiliation of childlessness. Yet both of them, of them are continuously pressing forward and they receive their Kiros moment where God shows up and changes everything. God uses two ordinary people who have lived their lives in the margin of society to begin the process of coming to be with him. This also shows me something else about this text that I think we often miss in the Christmas story because we're so busy looking to the suddenly, right? We're so busy jumping to the king that we actually miss this. And I want you to pay really, really super clear attention to this. You're going to have to go back and you're going to have to read the whole Christmas narrative, not just this text, but the whole thing. And you'll see what I'm talking about. There's an interesting movement that happens. Scripture is never static. It's never just keeping you how you want it to be, right? It's always moving. And there's an interesting movement that's happening in the Christmas story. I don't want us to miss it. It's important because it actually directly affects how we live our faith today. God is moving from the center of power, from what the scriptures call the, the holy of holies, in the temple, with a temple priest. And he starts in the story with this temple and with Zechariah the priest. He's following the structure of the Old Testament. But then look at what happens in this narrative. You'll see this throughout the whole Christmas story. He silences the priest. So he moves out of the Holy of Holies to the priest, and then he silences the priest, and he begins to extend his power to this barren wife, Elizabeth. And so we're seeing instead of this upward movement of power, we're seeing a downward movement of power. And then he extends that power if we jump outside of this story and attention to their unborn child, John. So see this power, God, in the Holy of Holies, to the priest, to Elizabeth, to John, you see it going downward, right? God is moving his power downward and he will keep doing this throughout the entire narrative. Eventually, he will use Mary, an un unwed, poor teenager, to be the mother of the son of God. 
Folks, we often expect the kingdom of God to come with power. But have you ever asked yourself what kind of power? The kingdom movement of the power that God brings as his son comes to be birthed is moving his power downward to the edges, to the margins, to empower those who lack worldly power. This is important because this is how God works at preparing the way. God uses simple nobodies to usher in the most radical change in history. He uses the ones who are long-suffering, the ones who put in the time and the effort, even though it seems ordinary and meaningless. God comes literally in the flesh into a broken world through meaningless, unimportant people who live their lives with God at the center. What you'll see in the Christmas narrative is God using obedient people that really mean nothing in the culture that they're living in. It's amazing how God is changing, upending our whole thought pattern on power, on authority, by taking it from up here and bringing it downward through human individuals. They suffer, and yet each of them held on to hope. They lived how God called them to be, even in the midst of sorrow and pain. And God shows up. And he uses these people to usher in his new kingdom. So when you think that today, folks, is just another ordinary day, I'm going to get up, grab my keys, do my thing, follow my routine, because we're creatures of habit. We love habit. It's just another ordinary, insignificant day. Think again. Because if you live your day in obedience to who God calls you to be, the scriptures show us that God will move in your day. That there's nothing ordinary about a life lived with God as our king. So so throughout the Christmas season, as we walk through this formation that Tamil's going to talk about later, be mindful of the suffering. Be open to doing the hard work of obedience. Put in your 10,000 hours. Because your 10,000 hours is just the beginning. Because this is exactly where God is going to meet you in the midst of your 10,000 hours, in the midst of you doing the work. Listen to what Peter says, the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 9. He says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. You understand that we see the world through our worldly sin-based lens, and God sees the world differently than we do. And so what we think is slow is not necessarily slow to God. He says, instead, he is patient with you, with us. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is slow because we are 
slow. You get it? God is slow because we are slow. We don't get it. We don't connect it. So God has to slow things down because we're so busy trying to find the suddenly that we miss doing the preparation. We don't know when God will act. Like when you read a book that says this is what will happen, they don't actually know. Don't bother with that book. But I can tell you that the scriptures say we can be sure that God will act. So I want to encourage you to live in the chronos. Do the long work, the hard work. Live in that preparation. Put in the time with God. Don't just make God a small devotion that you do in morning or in night and that's it. Put in your 10,000 hours that it takes to be the beginning of being someone who is walking in the spirit. Spend every moment with God at the center of your life. Live in repentance instead of regret. There's a difference, folks. Living in repentance is different than living in regret. And be aware of the margins all around you because God wants us to move our lives into those margins because that's where he is waiting for us. And it's in the margins where you will find God's power, his downward moving of power.